0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our first mandatory CME a question and answer podcast. I'm Lindsay Langeway. I'm the education coordinator here at SWORP, and I'm with Lauren Valdis, our medical director of education. And we're going to go over some questions you guys have submitted while reviewing your online material, as well as some from the interactive day.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for all the questions and uh, just a quick plug to keep them coming. So follow those links and ask those questions because if you're thinking them, at least 10 other people are as well and we'd like to get the answers out. So here we go with your first set of questions.
0: All right. The uh, first question comes from the online 12 lead, The Rhythms. So, this is a multi question. So, I'm going to start with the first part being at what point should PVCs be considered a life threat? Okay, thank you.
1: So, the number one overarching point with the following questions are all going to be that it's based on the patient condition. So, blood pressure, level of consciousness, and symptoms that dictate the management of the patient. So, with regards to PVCs, you treat the patient based on their symptoms. From a very definitional standpoint, and this goes above and beyond what you'd expect you to know, three or more ventricular beats greater than 100 beats per minute is considered non-sustained VT. Multiple episodes of this, with symptoms, would be considered concerning and should be watched closely for signs of decompensation into sustained VT. If they're in sustained VT, this should then be treated appropriately based on the presence or absence of a pulse and certification. So Trigeminy, bigemini, things like that, the rhythm itself doesn't matter so much as the patient's condition. The only one to watch for is if you have three or more sustained ventricular beats greater than 100, which would technically be non-sustained VT, with symptoms should be watched closely.
0: Thanks, Lauren. In the next part, uh, my understanding of junctional rhythms is that as long as the patient is stable and the rhythm is sustained slash mechanical, it is not a life threat. Is that correct? So this goes back to,
1: again, the number one overarching point is the patient condition. So in most cases, junctional, based on what you remember from your online 12 Lead the Basics module, are going to be a 40 to 60 beats per minute. So if that's the case, the patient is unlikely to be symptomatic, again, specifically with blood pressure, level of consciousness, chest pain, shortness of breath. However, if they're quite bradycardic, in a narrow rhythm, without an obvious P wave that you think is a junctional rhythm, then you need to treat them based on their symptoms. So if they're short of breath, if they have chest pain, if their level of consciousness is going down, you treat them based on their symptoms. And the same goes with the CTAS. You're assigning that based on the patient's symptoms, not so much the fact that it's junctional or sinus. It's based on the patient's symptoms.
0: And should a new onset of atrial fib be considered a life threat due to increased risk of clots, considering that the patient is stable otherwise?
1: So that's a great question. So if the patient is stable, it's not considered a life threat per se. Depending on the patient's comorbidities, there's an increased risk per year of stroke. Anywhere from 1% up to almost 10%, but that's per year and it's a risk of stroke. So the chance that you have somebody who's in new AFib, them throwing a stroke in front of you, (laughs) the chance is low. So that's a percent per year. So they need to be treated now that this rhythm is found with anticoagulation to prevent a future stroke, but it's unlikely to cause anything in front of you during transport with this new patient with AFib. As you will remember from your interactive and online modules, it's more so what the rhythm does to the patient condition. So again, that's the number one overarching point is the patient condition. So it's not going to be the risk of stroke. It's going to be the
0: fast rhythm that they can decompensate with that you should be watching for. Thank you, Lauren. No problem. Um, And are there any other polymorphic VT besides torsades? Okay, so this is definitely a higher level question and
1: something that we wouldn't necessarily expect you to be able to um, remember or even have on your radar as a question to ask. From a definition standpoint, polymorphic VT is just that. So it's ventricular tachycardia with multiple morphologies of the QRS complex. So that, from a definition standpoint, is what polymorphic VT is. Torsade is a specific type of polymorphic VT that's caused by an ectopic beat in the setting of a long QT, so that R on T phenomenon that you learn about. In order to be diagnosed as Torsade, you need to have a preceding long QT and document the extra beat that causes that undulating around the axis after. So we wouldn't expect you to diagnose this yourself. And again, it's very much a higher level question, but that's where that sort of question about polymorphic VT versus TORSOD comes from. From a definition standpoint, the TORSOD has to have that special um, extra information in order for you to call it TORSOD.
0: Thank you, Lauren. And why is treatment considered for SVT at a rate greater than 150 when most SVTs occur at a rate of 180 to 250 beats per minute So that's a great question, and this
1: is a discrepancy that's common when we look at arrhythmias. There's different ranges of expected, we can put that in quotation mark, rates depending on the resource used and where you learn the information from. The reason that the treatment is used is that 150 or greater beats per minute and associated ECG findings, so we're not going to go through those today, but those associated ECG findings that you'd be looking for, that tells you it's most likely SVT rather than either AFib or a sinus rhythm, is for safety. Less than 150 beats per minute, and you should definitely be considering other rhythms such as sinus tack rather than SVT. So in summary, there's no black and white cutoff to say 150 is definitely going to be SVT versus 180 is, oh yeah, definitely SVT. You can certainly have a normal sinus rhythm at 180, that is fast, but if you think about it yourself, when you're working out, you can certainly get up there. So it's not the fact that there's a direct cutoff. So it's not 150 is going to be SVT. It's 150 plus other findings, given that most SVTs are going to be in a range higher than that. But it gives you a little bit of room within your treatment if you think it's SVT and greater than 150 to go ahead and treat it within a safe range. So instead of ranges of heart rate, it's more so the ECG findings with the (laughs) ranges in heart rate that you use. So a bit of a mouthful. Hopefully that makes sense. But it's all about those different ranges and more so the full findings of the ECG
0: findings, not the rate itself. And our next question comes from the online 12-lead, the basics. So I often look at the QT interval on the 12-lead to see if it's normal. I'm never sure if I should be looking at the QT or the QTC. I know the QTC means corrected, but what does that actually mean and which one should I be looking at? Okay,
1: so this is another very higher level question. The QTC is just that, so it's the QT corrected. So it's a corrected value that takes into account the heart rate. Taking into account the heart rate allows for a better predictor of arrhythmia, as well as allows for different values to be compared for different heart rates. The formula itself is the QT divided by the square root of the R to R interval. Thankfully, the computer spits it out for us, but... The QTC should be used preferentially over the QT for clinical purposes because of number one above being it's a better predictor of arrhythmia. Note that the QT that's measured on your computer printout is going to be the QTC. So it's more of a definitional standpoint. The QTC that you see on your ECG printout is going to be the only printout you'll
0: get. But that's the difference between the QT and the QTC. Thank you, Lauren. So our next question comes from um, the online adrenal crisis module. And this is a multi-question one. So I'm going to break it down into a couple different uh, uh, segments so Lauren can answer all the questions here. So after administering uh, hydrocortisone, what should we expect in terms of patient recovery? Is it a rapid recovery or a progressive recovery?
1: So that's a fantastic question. So hydrocortisone will take some time to be processed. It can take four to six hours after administration to have its full effect. So you have to treat the symptoms that they have at the time in addition to giving the hydrocortisone. And it's a multi pronged question, so I think there's some more, Lindsay.
0: Yeah. So and what if this patient also is presenting with hypoglycemia following the hydrocortisone being administered? Should we initiate our hypoglycemic protocol? Absolutely. So because it's going to take a while for that hydrocortisone to work, you want to treat the symptoms that you see in front of you now. And what do you think we should start with as far as treatment? D50, D10 as per normal, or start with glucagon?
1: So, you should be treating per your directive. So, it's certainly okay to go ahead with the D50, D10 based on sort of patient age and what you carry with you. Um, that is going to get the quicker response than the glucagon. Um, of course, it depends on what
0: you carry and what you're uh, able to administer. So, I guess the same would be true too if we wanted to initiate a fluid bolus.
1: Yes. Exactly. So it's based on the patient's symptoms in front of you. If they're hypotensive, you want to treat that now with the hydrocortisone giving you
0: the insurance that the patient is going to be getting better over time. Thank you, Lauren. So our next few questions are going to come from the ACP online additional material. Uh, So the first question comes from the hyperkalemia module. Um, In the instance of cardiac arrest secondary to hyperkalemia, I would instinctively administer salbutamol through an MDI spacer placed in the BVM circuit. Alternatively, is it acceptable to administer the saline by emptying the nebule down the ETT tube? I have seen this done by some old-school medics when treating cardiac arrest secondary to constriction, but I'm wondering if this route of administration, although quick, would be as efficient as the traditional delivery methods. All
1: right, so this was an excellent question and one that was actually sent out to MAC for consensus. So you will be seeing an Ask Mac coming out shortly with this answer in it, but here's a bit of a spoiler for you if this comes out before the Ask Mac. So there is minimal evidence behind this old-school approach. There's a single study that was performed on 14 intubated patients comparing using 4 puffs MDI versus 1.25 milligrams of albuterol, which is basically the American equivalent of salbutamol, Note that this is much lower than the dose that we use. They did find, however, a reduction in airway resistance and peak expiratory pressures in the what was termed <laughs> a lavage <laughs> group, which is when you've got the fluid just directly down into those bronchioles, signaling that there could potentially be an effect with this lavage method. However, the authors of the study themselves admit that this is considered um, not the number one therapy to use and should be used not as a first-line therapy, so only to be considered when other modalities have failed. So please continue with your MDI um, as you would normally do and keep an eye out for that Ask Mac should be coming out soon.
0: Thank you, Lauren. Okay. Uh, so the next question also comes from the same module and uh, I'm wondering what the role of sodium bicarb is anymore. All right, so
1: that is a great question. So, the best evidence um, for for Bicarb, pardon me, would be I kind of give it away there, in TCA overdose. So, this is something that you ACPs would have remembered from your MCME last year when we talked about the TCA overdose case um, in your pre course module. So, the culture has certainly shifted when it comes to Bicarb use, and it's really not often in favor for use. So, it used to be that we thought that it should be used in prolonged arrest or prophylactic for a crush injury. So we now know that this is likely to be not helpful. Um, You may have it ordered by a BHP as a Hail Mary, but um, there are some consequences of its use as well that we went over in the uh, ACP pre-course last year. So it's unlikely to be ordered like it once was by the BHP. Notably, one of our current London Emerge residents is going to be giving us a talk on this, either a podcast or a webinar later this fall, about specifically this, the evidence behind bicarb and what situations to ask for it. So keep an eye and ear out for that because it's coming your way from Dr. Shane Freeman. Oh, that's
0: really good. I think that'll be really well received. Mm -hmm. Um, Next question comes from the VTAC with a Pulse uh, module. So the question is, in the VTAC with a Pulse case study, it is advised that amiodarone not be mixed with saline, but instead with D5W to limit precipitate and that it should be administered with an inline filter. What are your thoughts on that? Gotcha. So this is another
1: uh, thing that was brought forward, actually, with this year's MCME. The reason being, one of our services switched to using amiodarone from lidocaine within the past year And the pharmacy that supplied the amiodarone to them used this very particular algorithm, the reason being there's a theoretical risk of precipitation with amiodarone in 0.9% normal saline. That's why some pharmacies suggest the use of D5W with infusion. So they also, for the same reason, suggest potentially an inline filter. However, it's been in practice in both hospitals as well as other pre-hospital services to not use a filter and to use 0.9% normal saline for a long period of time. And no consequences have been (laughs) noted. So if your service uses the 0.9% normal saline without an inline filter, it's very much acceptable. And hopefully that gives you a bit of a background as to where
0: that information came from. So the next question comes from the ACP ECG extra that focused on syncope. So someone was looking for some more information regarding the HOCM ECG findings. Just wondering if you could give a little bit of uh, more information on that, Lauren.
1: Sure. So the ECGs on the module themselves are correct. So it mentioned in the audio, and that's me on the audio, so I apologize for that, that there are dagger key weaves in the anterior leads. However, as you can see from the presentation ECGs, that you see the dagger Q waves in the lateral, as well as inferior leads. So that's where you normally see them. So in the precordial leads, you see the inverted T waves. But when you're talking about the dagger Q waves, when it comes to hokum, you're looking in the lateral and inferior leads, not the anterior leads. That was in the audio. So a note has also been placed on the portal to mention that the audio is a little bit different. But follow those ECGs and thanks for the question.
0: And that's all our questions for our our podcast today. Thank you, everybody, for listening, participating in this wonky way of doing CME this year. Uh, Please keep the questions coming in um, and really have a great day.
1: Awesome. Thanks, everybody. And I just really want to thank uh, you guys for your patience in this crazy year. Um, we really wanted to keep things interactive, and I think we're the only base hospital that's doing anything other than videos online. Hopefully, you're finding those interactive sessions helpful. We, we still wanted to have you have access to us and have an interactive experience rather than just watching videos. So, big thank you to the pre-hospital care specialists. have done an exceptional job talking for three and a half hours straight, twice a day, <laughs> for the past little bit. And uh, they've done a fantastic job, so just... Really want to thank everybody for your patience this year. And with that, we are going to throw to David Arthur. He's our latest and greatest addition to the SWARP team. He's the one that made all your beautiful online modules just that beautiful. And uh, he's going to tell you where you can find these questions in uh, written form as well.
0: Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks, Lauren and Lindsay. Uh, It was great having you guys on today. You can find the form for the questions on the main page of the SWARP website under the quick links menu. It's uh, just to the right there. I believe it's right under SWARP communication. You can also find the form at the end of all of your modules as well. So keep the questions coming in and we'll, uh, we'll keep answering them in this format if this is what you like. So, yeah, thanks. Have a great day.
1: Awesome. Thanks, David. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye.